God bless you. You can be seated. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our study through the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. And we want to read the first three verses this morning. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Once there was a pastor who was taking up a special offering for the church building fund. And suddenly the owner of the local tavern jumped up and he shouted out, Pastor, I'll donate $5,000. Of course, this was the pastor's worst nightmare. You see, he knew that this money was, you know, a part of liquor receipts. And this man was a pastor of integrity, and he knew it just wouldn't be right to accept money for God's work that he knew had come from the sale of alcohol. And so reluctantly, the pastor turned to the tavern owner, and he, he told the man, he said, Sir, I'm sorry, as much as the church really needs that money, I just can't accept an offering from the sale of liquor. Well, that's when one of the other church members in the back he jumps up and he shouts out, Go ahead and take it, Pastor. It's our money anyhow. <laughs> well, evidently, the people of the church had compromised their convictions. And the pastor was tempted to do the same. You see, compromise is an evil that every Christian faces. It doesn't matter if you're an usher or if you're a teacher, if you're a singer, if you're a preacher. This coming week, you'll be tempted to compromise your morals and your convictions and your character. All Christians have to deal with the temptation to compromise. And understand, compromise leads to death and destruction. Guys, that compromise with sin, that compromise with the devil, it's really not a compromise at all. The idea of it being a compromise is only an illusion. You see, the devil only presents the choice as a compromise. In reality, he wants it all. He wants to ensnare your heart and your life and your future and your hope. He desires to entrap you and deface you and defile you and to destroy you. He hates you. In the end, any compromise with sin is not a compromise at all. It's a capitulation. It's an utter defeat. Compromise is a spiritual pirate. It's the ransacking of a believer's treasure and strength and valuables. It's a temple robber. It enters the temple of your spirit and steals away your devotion to God, your love for God, the blessings of God. It's been said, compromise is like paying the cannibals to eat you last. But here's how you guard against compromise. You decide in advance the issues in your life that are non-negotiables. My friend in Austin, Texas, Alan Rigg, he calls them the ADMs, the advanced decisions made. 
the commitments forged beforehand, before the temptation arises. We'll resist the urge to compromise if we decide in advance the absolutes in our life where we won't hedge, the footholds where we won't budge. These are the resolutions of heart, the deliberations of conduct that establish character, that constitute our integrity. Your non-negotiables are what separate you from the rest of the world. They're what makes your life a shining testimony for Jesus Christ. The non-negotiables are the jewels in your crown, your spiritual treasure, your valuables. In fact, that's why we call them values. You may have material possessions and accumulations, things and toys and assets and deposits and trinkets and so forth. But you have decided that you're going to keep them in your place. You have decided that you're not going to let stuff become your God. That's your non-negotiable. You worship one God. You, you may not worship Him as much as you like or often get distracted from Him. But when you worship Him, you worship Him in the way that He desires to be worshipped. No graven images. That's a non-negotiable. Your language may not be as pure as you'd like, and you're asking the Holy Spirit to help you control your tongue. An idle or a raunchy word might slip out from time to time, but you've decided that from your mouth you will never degrade or profane the Lord's name. That's a non-negotiable. You're a busy person. Your minivan has those magnetic footballs and soccer balls and cheerleader megaphones on the tailgate. And you've agreed to cart your kids around to just about any practice, anywhere, at any time. But there's one non-negotiable. You're not going to sign your kids up for an activity that will take your family out of church on a regular basis. You're keeping one day in seven holy and set apart for worship. You might struggle with certain forms of authority in your life. Maybe a boss, maybe a husband or a coach or a teacher perhaps. Even the government. And you're learning to submit, but you have determined ahead of time, it's a non-negotiable for you, that you're going to always honor your mother and your father. Well, you get frustrated with people. I do too. Hey, dealing with people sometimes bugs you. But you're not going to murder anyone. Not even character assassination. That's a non-negotiable for you. You and your spouse argue a lot. And you struggle to see eye to eye. But you have decided in advance that you're going to honor your commitment. And you're going to stay true to your vows. It's a non-negotiable. You're not going to commit adultery in action or in thought. You don't make a lot of money. Legitimate needs in your life are going unmet. But you have again decided in advance to trust the Lord for what you need rather than take what doesn't belong to you. You feel you're being treated unfairly. That you've gotten a short end of the stick. But lying to get your way is not an option. Here's a non-negotiable truth-telling in my life. I'm going to tell the truth. And you're working hard to upgrade your house and keep your wife in a nice car and buy your kids cool clothes. But you've decided in advance not to compare yourself with other people in your station in life. You're not going to compare them with yourself with them and what they possess this is a non-negotiable for you. You're tired of playing keeping up with the Joneses. It's not for you. You're not going to covet your neighbor's situation. You see, this is what the Ten Commandments are all about. 
It's establishing these non-negotiables in our lives. God's top ten are what He knows we need. They're the issues in life that really matter. These ten are bedrock principles on which we can build our lives and build our families. One night at dinner, a father pulled out his Bible and shared a devotion with his family. And the passage that he read included the Ten Commandments. When it was over, he realized that he had gone a little too long. And he had lost the attention of his preschoolers. And so in an effort to sort of reel them back in and sort of pull them back into the discussion, he asked his five-year-old, he said, Son, how many commandments did God give to Moses? And that's when little Seth sort of shook his head and answered, Too many. (laughs) Guys, man-made religion majors on the minors and minors on the majors. It makes a big deal out of the minutia. It amplifies the trivial. Man-made religion makes obedience to God complicated and cumbersome. But that's not the obedience that God desires from us. God has given us just ten real priorities, ten non-negotiables. I love 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. It should serve as a commentary on the Ten Commandments. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Notice John doesn't say, This is how you earn the love of God. Nor nor does he say, this is how you keep yourself in God's love. Rather, he says that the commandments are an expression of God's love. This is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. You see, God knows how to maximize our lives. He, He knows how to protect us from evil. He knows what it takes to live life to the fullest. And because he wants the best for us, that's why he's given us these Ten Commandments. And John isn't through. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 finishes the thought. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. God doesn't give us a million do's and don'ts to weigh us down and bum us out and confirm our condemnation. No, He gives us just ten commandments, ten non-negotiables, because He knows they'll protect us and He'll bless us and they'll make our lives better. Remember Exodus 31, verse 18. We read it last week. It tells us, When God had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Apparently, God wrote down the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. And thus, he divided these commandments into two categories. The first tablet, which consisted of the first five commandments, defines man's relationship with God, the vertical relationship. While the second tablet, or the last five commands, outlines man's relationship with his fellow man, the horizontal relationship. You remember in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked by a Jewish scholar, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave the man two He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, Jesus was summarizing the two tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. The first tablet teaches us how to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. While the second tablet teaches us to love our neighbor as ourself. Which reminds me of the day when Moses went to God and he asked him, he said, Lord, we're a sick people. We're hurting. We need your help, Lord. What medicine can you prescribe to us? 
And that's when God, the great physician, he handed Moses the Ten Commandments and he said, take these two tablets daily and if you're not feeling better later, come back and see me. (laughs) Guys, if you take these two tablets daily, you will be healthier and happier and holier. The Ten Commandments are the medicine that we most desperately need. And this morning we want to look at the very first commandment, numero uno, at the top of God's top ten God says to the Hebrews and to us, His people then and now, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Understand the context which this commandment was initially given. The Hebrews had just departed from a land full of idols. The ancient Egyptians worshipped nature and deified animals, even the Pharaoh. In fact, they recognized 20,000 different gods. And even the Hebrews had developed an attraction to many of these gods while living in Egypt. Later in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, the next generation is commanded to put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. In the study of Exodus, we often overlook an important point, and that's that these ten plagues, you remember the ten plagues that God brought on the Egyptians? They were actually an assault on Egyptian idolatry. Numbers 33 verse 4 comments, On their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. You see, turning the Nile to blood, the proliferation of frogs, the swarms of flies, the death of the firstborn, even the diseased livestock were not just plagues chosen at random. Each of those plagues targeted a specific Egyptian deity. The Nile River was considered sacred. The goddess Hecht was personified as a frog. Beelzebub, or the Lord of the Flies was an ancient name for Satan. Is it any wonder that the Pharaoh and that Egypt worshipped flies? In fact, the Pharaoh and his heir, his firstborn, were also considered divine. The Egyptians, you won't believe this, but they even worshipped bulls and heifers. Holy cow, what a mistake. <laughs> the ten plagues that Charlton Heston brought on Yule Brenner and those Egyptians were designed by the one true God to show His supremacy over their top ten idols. God dared the forces of evil to a showdown and blew them all out of, a, out of the water. With His strong arm and with a shepherd's rod, God knocked off all of the gods of Egypt one by one. And here's the nation now, standing before God at Mount Sinai, ha- having just witnessed all that has happened. It's just been 90 days since the Exodus. They're now liberated. They're now sitting there with a fresh start, a new hope. And they got these 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and other miracles to boot, all now etched, burned, seared into their minds. Demonstrations of the reality and the supremacy of the one true God. And now God tells them, never again. Are you to worship anyone else? How could you? His words thunder from the mountain. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Fast forward about 3,500 years. You're now in modern times. A day when men have walked on the moon, when high-tech computers link the world in instant communication, when medical marvels have fought off disease and lengthened our lifespan. You would think that the human race, after all of that, would have outgrown its propensity for idolatry. That no one today would worship a stick of wood or a carved stone or an animal or a tree or a star anymore. But that's not what's happened. All over the world today, idolatry still abounds. Today, in the country of India, Hindus worship 300 million gods and goddesses. In fact, there's more than eight idols per household in India. There's enough beef in that country for India to feed the entire continent. But it can't be harvested because Hinduism teaches reincarnation. And if you eat old Betsy, you might just be eating your grandma. Monkeys and rats are also considered sacred in India, and thus rodents and scavengers are allowed to ravish crops. They're worshipped rather than be exterminated. Also realize that there are Buddhists the world over who worship that chubby little image they sit on their mantle. In fact, every year, 100,000 people flock to Ceylon where they pay homage to Buddha's tooth, no less. His eye tooth sits in a temple. And Buddhist worshipers lay their, before it their gifts of gold and silver and jewels. Muslims worship Allah, who despite what they might tell you, is not the God of the Jews and the Christians. Allah is a false God. You can trace his worship back to a time predating Muhammad. Allah was a local Arab deity. He was probably the moon God, which explains why the symbol for Islam is the crescent moon. There are disciples of Rome who bow before icons and statues of the Virgin. They direct their prayers to relics and they believe that they hold supernatural powers. New Age patrons here in America worship Mother Earth and Father Sky. They pay homage to Gaia, the goddess of the nature, and Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. New Agers will wear their crystals and sleep under their pyramids, trusting in these inanimate objects to infuse them with spiritual life and energy and power. And believe it or not, there's even a group in Denver, Colorado, known as the Church of the Risen Elvis. No kidding. They consider Elvis Presley a god. They've enshrined a little Elvis doll that they sit right above their altar. And they've adorned the altar with candles and flowers. And they raise their hands in worship. And they chant Elvis's name. And they pray to the deceased star. And they hold special services whenever an Elvis sighting occurs. And imagine, they do all this for a man who said about himself, I ain't nothing but a hound dog. <laughs> My point is, is that idolatry, even in modern times, is still alive and well. And yet, most of you are probably thinking, this can't possibly apply to me. I mean, this issue is a million miles from where I live. I don't have an idol sitting on my mantle, Pastor Sandy. There's no Buddha in my living room. I'm in no danger of idolatry. You know, recently a Barna Research Group poll revealed that 76% of all Americans believe that they were completely true to this first commandment. 81% of women 
And 69% of men felt that they had no other gods before the one true God. But here is where I think we need to reconsider a bit. Here's, we need, here's where we need to sort of think about this again. You know, just this past week, I was reading through the newspaper, trying to look for, always looking for sermon illustrations. But I ran across a few statements in the newspaper just this past week that used religious language in an unexpected way. It applied it to non-religious objects. On Monday, for example, an article appeared. It talked about a rock concert and particularly the guitar playing of Eddie Van Halen. And this is what the article said. In the end, it was all about Eddie. Firmly middle-aged, but still lean, keen, and shirtless. He was in total control of what was a love fest. And this is what it says. This was Eddie's temple of rock, and the 8,000-plus fans bowed to their Savior. Boy. A Tuesday article. On the proliferation of cleaning products, no less. It opened up this way. The stain-slaying product is all but worshipped at the altar of the front loader. <laughs> and then on Wednesday, there was a report on Diana DeGarmo, who had visited the Walmart up here in Snellville. And of course, you know Diana. She was the star of American Idol, an interesting name for a television show, American Idol. But, but the article quoted a mother who was describing her six-year-old daughter's obsession with Diana. And the mother said, she's been watching her and rooting her own. Diana has become her idol. There's that word again. Please understand, I'm not suggesting that Diana is trying to gain your worship or that she's seeking to be anybody's God, nor is Eddie Van Halen, though I'm less confident about him. <laughs> nor are the manufacturers of OxyClean, I'm sure about that. But I think all of this language is revealing. Even in modern culture, we still talk in terms of worship and homage and idols. I do believe that idolatry is a bigger issue for all of us than we really want to think. For you can make an idol out of anything, out of a person or a possession or a pleasure or a leisure activity or a position or a profession or a philosophy. Idolatry, I think, is a threat to us all. D.L. Moody once said this, You don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. Arthur Wallace put it this way, an idol may be defined as any person or thing that has usurped in the heart the place of preeminence that belongs to the Lord. And as Billy Graham stated, whatever you love most, be it sports, pleasure, business, or God, that is your God. You see, idolatry is far more relevant than we think. When Paul writes to Timothy, he calls the one true God, the Almighty, the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And I like that. That means that all the good stuff in life, all the holy and healthy and happy stuff, the things and thrills that truly bless our lives, it all comes from God. And He takes joy in watching us enjoy. Take, for example, football. I know that God created football. And I really enjoy sitting down in front of a football game. And watching the strategy unfold and watching all the action take place. 
It's a diversion from my normal routine. It enables me to relax and release and recharge my batteries. I mean, I can sit there in front of that football game and bark and sick them and cheer on the dogs, and when the game is over, I just feel better when they win. (laughs) And you know what? I believe that the Lord takes pleasure in me sitting there watching the dogs. But can I take that legitimate pleasure too far? Can I take a football game and a football team and turn it into something illegitimate, even an idol? Absolutely I can. I've met plenty of Bulldog fans who've gone too far. Each week they sit before the altar and they live or die on the dogs. They pray to Vince Dooley. They're totally consumed. That football team occupies their life. Some men worship the football gods and offer up the sacrifice of pigskin. And lest I alienate all of the men this morning and please all of the women, I'd hate to do that. It really kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? Take shopping, for example. Some of you ladies enjoy browsing the mall. Shopping relaxes you and enables you to unwind. It provides you great enjoyment. And is there anything wrong with shopping? I wish I could say otherwise, but, but no, there's not. I really hate to admit this. You men might hate me forever. You might bring me your visa bills. But in the spirit of fairness, I've got to admit this. When God sees the ladies going shopping and enjoying themselves and fellowshipping with each other, He takes pleasure in their pleasure. I'm sure of it. But can shopping be abused? You betcha. Bargain hunting and the shopping spree and the latest fashion and even the blue light special can all become an obsession. It can become an idol to some people. Here's my point. When any legitimate relationship or possession or pleasure or profession or philosophy, whenever it moves outside the boundaries that God has established for it, or if it grows in significance until it's more important than God, it has become an idol. Good things, legitimate relationships, noble causes, useful tools, God-given pleasure, unsought recognition can all turn into an idol if we let it get out of proportion. Here is the non-negotiable this morning. Here is the non-negotiable in my life. I deliberately try to guard my heart from any preoccupation that will take my focus off of God for any length of time. I want my heart and my mind and my time and my soul reserved for God. How can He truly be my God if I spend all my time and energy and effort worshiping something else? Guys, possessions can become an idol. We, we don't really call them idols. We call them toys. But they're idols nonetheless. You say you don't have an idol, but check out in the garage. Or look in your golf bag. Or on your gun rack. Or in your jewelry box. Or in the bank account. People wash and wax their idol every weekend. They wear it around their neck or wrist. It's stored in the attic or it sits in the den or it buzzes when it connects to the internet. Hey, let me examine your checkbook. Let me look through your day timer. And it won't take me long to figure out what you worship. What gets the majority of your time and your money and your effort? Don't 
take light of what I'm saying, God sure isn't treating this lightly. Items can turn into idols. Material possessions have a way of grabbing our hearts and jerking them from Jesus. It's okay to possess things just as long as those things don't possess you. Well, possessions can become idols, but so can people. Human relationships can take precedent over our, a person's relationship with God. A friend or a sweetheart or a spouse can become more important to you than God. Hey, I've seen new parents drop off their little idols right back there at the nursery Sunday morning. People can become an idol, but so can popularity. Selfish ambition, the lust for fame, esteem in the eyes of others is what drives some people. They feed off of other people's approval. They live for the cheers of the crowd. Even an association with someone who's popular himself can become an idol. And so can position or profession. Business success can become an idol. Tom Peters wrote a classic book called In Search for Excellence. And it was a book that was used to model good business practices. But recently, Peters was quoted as saying, The cost of excellence is the giving up of family vacations, little league games, birthday dinners, gardening, reading, and most other pastimes. We have a number of friends whose marriages crumbled under the weight of their devotion to a dream. We are frequently asked if it is possible to have it all, a fully satisfying personal life and a fully satisfying, hardworking one. Our answer is no. Jesus agreed with that. He told us a long time ago that no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You have to put one more important than the other and sacrifice the other one. Make profession your God, and you'll run the risk of losing everything else that really matters. But the opposite can also happen. Leisure can become your God. Some people, for some people, work is their God, but for other people, they live for the weekend. That's their God. Their top ambition is to kick back and party. What movies can they see? Where can they go? What tickets can they get? What vacation can they afford? Leisure becomes their goal in God. Pleasure, too, can become an idol. Sex, drugs, food, entertainment, football, soap operas, reality television shows, even news coverage can become an idol. Ravi Zacharias, he defines a legitimate pleasure as follows. Anything that refreshes along the journey without distracting from the goal. I like that. A legitimate pleasure is anything that refreshes along the journey without distracting from the goal. A pleasure becomes an idol when it proves that it's going to distract you from God. I've heard idolatry defined as this, making a mountain out of a molehill. For example, there's nothing wrong with a vacation, but it's the molehill. It's not the mountain. It should be the diversion, not the aim of my life. A trip to the ballpark or a fun day at the beach. That's great, but don't let it be the end all, the end in itself. Let Jesus take charge of the trip. Let Him direct your steps. Spend that time with the Lord as well. You see, pleasure can be an idol, and so can philosophy. How many folks have gotten caught up in an idea or a movement or a noble cause? Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote, Men are idolaters, 
and they want something to look at and kiss and hug and throw themselves down before. They always did. They always will. And if you don't make it out of wood, you must make it out of words. A good cause like world peace or save the earth or save the whales for that matter. Even good grades. And I hesitate to say that because I'm a parent and I definitely want good grades. But even good grades can become an idol. Even an ideal can become an idol. And don't forget the most subtle idol of all. Pride can create an idol out of you, out of me. You see, this was the gist of ancient idolatry. The gods that men made were actually images of themselves. Of course, their strengths were exaggerated and their weaknesses were downplayed. But man has always made his gods in his own image and in his own likeness. And modern man, you see, has the same tendency, just with more audacity. He simply renounces the whole notion of a supreme being. He puts himself in the place of God. He claims to be the master of his own fate, captain of his own ship. Reminds me of the arrogant fellow who called dollar prayer just to see if he had any messages. Some people think they're God. They're sure end up being their own authority. Did you hear about the five little boy, the five-year-old little boy who prayed, Dear Lord, when I'm dead, can I be God? At least he was willing to wait till he was dead. I know some 50-year-olds and some 35-year-olds and some 25-year-olds who want to be their own God right now. At least that's how they live their lives. That's how they make their decisions. They make up their own rules and they set their own course and they rely on their own wisdom. Their idol has become I. Earlier in this morning's study, I quoted Joshua 24, where we're told that the Hebrews in Egypt worship the gods of the Egyptians. That amazes me. That they were attracted to the gods who had enslaved them, supposedly, and had made their lives miserable. That they were attracted to worship their own cruel taskmasters. But you see, that's what happens when you worship an idol. Satan is behind every idol. He camouflages himself in the suit of another god. And it's only after you have bowed down and you have paid homage and you have developed an attraction and a dependence on that god that suddenly Satan rips away his mask and he reveals his intent to trap you and to destroy you. It reminds me of the fly that landed on the flypaper. The fly boasted, my flypaper. While the flypaper said, my fly. (laughs) When you worship another god, Satan lets you think you're in control. That you're using it for your enjoyment. But then right after you buy that, suddenly you realize that that idol that you've worshipped is really in control of you. You're in bondage. You're addicted. And by the time you realize it, often Satan has sucked the very life right out of you. The one true God wants to better your life. The Bible says no good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Any other God you might choose to worship will only diminish you. In a few weeks, we're going to be visiting the island of Hispaniola. There are two countries there that occupy that one island, Haiti on one side 
and the Dominican Republic on the other side. 200 years ago, the people of Haiti prayed to Satan that, he would del- if, that if he delivered them from, from French control, that they would devote their nation to worship Satan. 200 years ago, the Dominican Republic is largely a Christian nation that worships the one true God. Well, even a brief visit now to the island of Hispaniola will teach you a lot about what God will do for a country and what Satan will do for a country. For Satan is the mortal enemy of mankind. His mission is to always steal and kill and destroy. Go to Haiti and you'll find a nation dominated by voodoo, gripped by an unrelenting and brutal poverty, bogged down with corruption, a nation with no infrastructure to withstand the tropical storms that have recently devastated the people's lives. This is what Satan and his enticements want to do for your life. Whereas a visit to the Dominican Republic paints a different picture. The land is fertile. The forest is lush. The country is prosperous. Remember, it's the same island, but one side has been raped by Satan while the other side has enjoyed the blessings of God. Imagine in your mind three million Hebrews gathered together at the foot of this holy mountain. They are standing there before God. Thunder and lightning are overhead. The ground is rumbling under their feet. And that's when the voice of God booms out. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, when we hear those words, we think that God is standing there with a long, long printout. With this long list of occupations and things that can be done. And he's simply saying, guys, I want to be up here on the top of this list. Oh, there are a lot of things to do. I just want to make sure that you put me up here on top, that you have no other gods before me. I want to be on top of this list. That's what we think. I read a sermon this week on the first commandment, and it was entitled, Put God First. But I think there's more to this commandment than just that. Remember, the physical, tangible presence of God had descended on Mount Sinai. The mountain now is God's pulpit. The people are the congregation standing before Him. When suddenly God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't just mean before me at the top of my list. No, He means before me out here, beside me, behind me, around me. You're to have no other gods out here before me or around me or beside me or near me. You're to have no other gods at all. He's saying, I want to be your only God, not just the top of your big long list of priorities. I want to be your only God, the only thing you worship and serve. In the first commandment, God eliminates all other rivals. That's what he's doing here. The Phillips paraphrase captures this idea. It says, it quotes God as saying, no other gods, only me. That's what he said to them. You see, the first commandment excludes from our lives anything that competes with our affection for God or our devotion to God. Again, God isn't saying that we can't possess stuff or have fun or enjoy relationships as long as those relationships draw us to Him rather than keep us from Him. God wants to be the end all, be all of our lives. Here's the litmus test we need to apply. Is the stuff in our lives a tool to draw us closer to God 
or is it a distraction that gets between us and God? This past summer, Kathy and I took the boys on vacation to New York City. We'd never been there. And I went on to Hotel.com and got a good deal on a room right off of Times Square. If you're going to New York City, you might as well be right in the thick of things. And in New York City, it is impressive. It is truly impressive. The glitz and the glamour. We even went to a Yankees game. The flash, the splash. And I suppose New York City and Times Square embodies all that this world has to offer. It really does. But on our way home from New York, I remembered a quote that I had read from a preacher named Bud Robinson. He had visited New York, and after his first visit to the Big Apple, he prayed the prayer that expressed my heart as well. He said, Lord, I thank you for letting me see all the sights of New York City, and I thank you most of all that I didn't see anything that I wanted. Here is the first non-negotiable. Here's the non-negotiable this morning that I hope you lay in concrete in your life every day. Will you make a conscious, deliberate effort to guard your heart and your mind from anything that might distract you from God or weaken your love for God? Commandment number one instructs us not to allow anything else in our lives to become more important to us than God. Hear Him speak to you this morning. No other gods, only me. Father, thank you this morning for your word. And thank you, Lord, for the challenge to all of our hearts to establish this one non-negotiable in our lives, to have no other gods, only you. Lord, help us to search our hearts and our minds this morning and see if we've allowed other things to become more important or if we've allowed some issue in our life, Lord, to move outside the boundaries that you've ordained for it. It's sort of taken over. It, it's consuming us now, and it's become much more important to us than it should be. Forgive us for that, Lord. And tomorrow, I pray that you'll help us to guard our hearts and put up a screen, put up a filter where we won't allow anything to grip us to this extent that it might rival our affections or our commitment to you. Help us, Lord, to be people of one God who worship only one God, who have no other gods in our lives but you. Help us, Lord. Work in our hearts, work in our minds this morning. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.